0: Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 down through chapter 2, verse 3. Let me just read this. Then God said, "'Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth.'" And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he had rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. This is God's word. You may feel the tension more and more in our culture uh, that goes with believing something like this. You know, are you so crazy as to actually be a creationist? Come on, in today's world with everything that science has done for us, how can you actually believe this stuff? Well, I'd like to go so far, call me crazy, but but let's talk about this. I think there's something here for us. I, I think there's something here that can speak into our culture in a powerful way. The doctrine of the image of God means that there's not a single person in the entire world that does not bear God's image. And so, therefore, there's not a single person in the entire world that Christians should not have the utmost respect for. So we're going to look at the image of God this morning. It's a teaching that has enormous implications for you psychologically, sociologically, relationally. We'll do what we can to try to see what it basically means and to see what it means for the, this thing called the sanctity of human life. And I want us to look at three primary things, three points this morning. Three. This is our way forward. We're going to look at first the created Image. Secondly, the fallen image. And thirdly, the redeemed image. The image of God, the created image, the fallen image, and the redeemed image. That's where we're going this morning. So, first, Genesis chapter 1, uh, verse 26 and 27, it shows us the climax. This is the climax of God's activity in creation. He's made everything else already, the heavens, the earth, the animals, the trees, the plants, and now God sets out to create humanity, and the author of this text really wants to make this point. It's very apparent that he wants us to see this point that God created mankind in his own image. That appears three separate times in these two verses. So whatever it is, it's crucially important. And the rest of the biblical narrative, actually, depends on it. This initial teaching of the Amago day is uh, a significant thread that goes throughout the rest of the Old and New Testaments. One theologian says that the image of God in Genesis 1 functions as a placeholder designed to mark out the human as the focus amidst all creation in the succeeding narratives. Many biblical theologians recognize that the Bible, the storyline of the Bible can be summarized in at least three big parts. The Bible is obviously very complex, lots of different books, lots of different literary genres, lots of different teachings, but when you zoom out, there's a story, there's a narrative. And that grand narrative is summarized by at least... These three things creation, fall, redemption. And every part of that story is important. Every part of the narrative matters. Nancy Piercy is an author, she warns believers against the dangers of ignoring certain elements of the story or leaving out important elements of the biblical narrative at the expense of others, stressing too heavily on some parts and not enough on others. So in her book, Total Truth, Piercy says it like this, perhaps the most common imbalance in American evangelicalism is to overemphasize the fall. Consider the typical evangelistic message, you're a sinner, you need to be saved. Piercy says, of course, that's true. It's true, we are sinners, but notice that the message starts with the fall instead of creation. The Bible begins with creation. It begins with our value and our dignity rooted in the fact that we are created in the image of God. In fact, it's only because humans have such a high value that sin is so tragic. Piercy argues that if we were worthless sinners to begin with, then the fall would have been a trivial event. She continues, when a a cheap trinket is broken, we toss it aside with a shrug. But when a priceless masterpiece is defaced, we're horrified. It is because humans are the masterpiece of God's creation that the destructiveness of sin produces such horror, and sorrow. So the image of God is important, crucially important. It's an important part of the biblical story. It's an an important part of the human experience, and we shouldn't miss it. But what does it mean? Essentially what it means, essentially the Imago Dei means that in many ways, we as people, created people, look like God. We look like him. Not physically, necessarily, but in much of who we are and what we're like. Our need to give and receive love, our need for relationships, our sense of morality and justice, our capacity to reason, our creativity, and so on and so forth. Because we resemble God in these ways, because he made us this way, we have infinite value. Every person who's ever lived. It might be helpful for us to think about how this actually works. What does it mean to be in the image of God? Well, it means two things, basically. It means we reflect God, and it means we represent God. Reflect and represent. Like a mirror. I bet most of you looked in the mirror today, at some point, before coming here. I can tell... Because you all look very nice. Most of us spent time, at least a little bit of time, in front of a mirror. Now, when you look in a mirror, who do you see? Is it you? It's a trick question. It's not not you. When you look in a mirror, who do you see? You see a reflection of you, an image of you. And... The real you, the actual you, who is really you, must be standing there in order for the image to be there. In other words, the the image depends on the actual you for its very existence. It's just an image. It's a reflection. It's not full, ultimate reality. And in the same way, we image God. Our existence depends on his, and he made us so that we reflect Him, we look like Him, we, f- we face God in creation, and therefore we accurately reflect Him, and in doing so, we represent Him to the world. You can learn a lot about what God is like by looking at a person. Now, of course, it's also true that you can learn a lot about what God is not like by looking at a person, but that's the fallen image, we'll get there Next, look at Genesis chapter 1, verses 27 through 30. God creates mankind, and then He intended that they would represent His glory throughout the entire world. That's, that's what's in vision here. That's, that's when others look at you, they see something of Him. They see a painting. They see a statue of God, to use another illustration. And it's because of this image that our lives have meaning and worth, that there's this thing called the sanctity of human life. One Christian author says, there is an objective, irreducible glory, significance, value, and worth in every single human being. Every human life is sacred, and every human being has dignity. The Bible teaches it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done, where you're from. It doesn't matter how low you've gone. Everyone is an image bearer of our perfect creator. And so everyone matters. Everyone matters. From world leaders to the forgotten and homeless. From the elderly to the not- yet born everyone around the world and so if you think about that you can begin to see just how significant this teaching is and how much it can affect your everyday life the image of God has huge implications for us I'd like to talk about just a couple first the image of God has implications for how you treat other people James chapter 3, James understood the doctrine of the image of God and its implications. Chapter 3, verse 9, James says, with the same tongue, we praise God and we curse other human beings made in the image of God. He says we shouldn't curse or slander anyone, any person at all. Why? Because God made them in his image. Everyone bears God's image. C.S. Lewis expounds on this point uh, quite brilliantly in that famous sermon of his, The Weight of Glory. Maybe you've heard this. Listen to what he says. Lewis says, There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. It is immortals with whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub And exploit. Everyone someday will be in immortal horror or in everlasting splendor. The weight of my neighbor's glory should be laid daily on my back, a load so heavy that only humility can carry it. The backs of the proud will be broken. In other words, Lewis is saying that we must treat every person who comes into our paths with a sacredness, a reverence, a respect, a concern for their individuality, a kindness. And so he continues, this does not mean that we are to be perpetually solemn. We must play. But our merriment must be of the kind which exists between people who have, from the outset, taken each other seriously. No flippancy. No superiority, no presumption. Another big implication of the issue of the image of God, another big way this impacts us is the issue of human rights. Think about this. Everyone loves human rights. Where does the idea of human rights come from? Why do humans have rights? You can trace it all the way back to the image of God. Michael Horton is a professor at Westminster Seminary in California, and he writes about that, because every person is created in God's image, he or she is a dignified bearer of rights and a responsible moral agent. Human rights do not derive from the authority of the individual, the majority, or the state, but from God alone. And this has been understood for millennia. Martin Luther King, Jr. famously argued that the Amago day was the reason behind everything he was doing with the civil rights movement. It was the foundation, the driving force. He said famously, "There are no gradations in the image of God. Every man from a treble white to a base black is significant on God's keyboard." precisely because every man is made in the image of God. In Genesis 9, verse 5 and 6, God was establishing his covenant with Noah, and it says, From each man, God will demand an accounting for the life of his fellow man because he made them in his image. So you see how huge... The Imago Dei is. It's the reason we shouldn't murder. And it's the reason we shouldn't even speak badly about someone like James says. The Christian worldview holds that all human beings everywhere are made in God's image. The Christian worldview provides the best basis, the best foundation for the idea of human rights. And while most today still may affirm God's existence in some way, the influential voices in our culture speak from a purely secular, materialistic worldview. So let's move over to that platform and see what it's like. Let's test drive it. From an atheist standpoint, which obviously denies that we're created in God's image, there is simply no rational, solid, basis for human rights or human significance. It's just not there. Oliver Wendell Holmes, Jr. served the Supreme Court in the early 1900s, you may know. He put it like this, I see no reason for attributing to man a significance different in kind from that which belongs to a baboon or a grain of sand. How do you like that? You're not special. There's nothing in terms of value, different between you and a grain of sand. Well known atheist from the 20th century, Bertrand Russell. Remember his name? Maybe you read him in college. Bertrand Russell said it like this Who we are, where we came from. We are the product of causes that had no prevision of the end they were achieving. The hopes, fears, loves, and beliefs of our minds are just the outcome of the accidental collocation of atoms. He says, all the labors of the ages, all the devotion, the inspiration and brightness of human genius, it's all destined to extinction in the vast death of the solar system. Only within the scaffolding of these truths, only on the firm foundation of unyielding despair, Can the soul's habitation henceforth be safely built? Did you hear that? In other words, now that we know there's no God, now that we've figured that out, now that we we know there's no God who created the world and everything in it, this means that everything you do now, everything, no matter what it is, is going to make no difference in the end meaningless when you die you rot the universe is blind impersonal we are accidents the universe doesn't care about you or anyone and we're all going to burn up in the sun anyway now go fight for human rights is there is there a problem i hope you see it i have great love and respect for my atheist friends but we should talk about this a secular culture that denies the existence of God says that we're nothing more than complex organisms we've just evolved. So, what's the basis for human rights? Everybody loves human rights. It's all the rage today. Why? Where do they come from? Who says? Well, modern atheist Richard Dawkins answers this question. What makes, what makes humans worthy of rights? Dawkins says it like this. Well... Human beings have rights because in their evolution, they have developed the capacity to reason, to think, to have self-awareness and moral values. That's the basis for human worth. And this speaks very much to the big controversial issue of abortion. What secular philosophers like Dawkins say is that the reason people have dignity and value is basically because of their mental capacity. So there's nothing morally questionable about ending the life of an unborn baby because, well, an unborn baby just does not have those capacities yet. They can't reason, they cannot have moral convictions, they don't have self-awareness yet. But there's a big problem with this view. And a man named Peter Singer makes the problem very, very obvious to us. Uh, Singer is a modern philosopher, secular philosopher. He's a professor of bioethics at Princeton University. And as an atheist, Peter Singer was quoted as saying that he thinks the Supreme Court was right to say that abortion was okay for the reasons we just addressed. Makes sense, right? But he goes further. He takes this notion quite literally, and he's logically consistent, philosophically consistent, and he makes a lot of people angry at him, religious and secular alike. He observes that not only do unborn babies not have these mental capacities, that's obvious, but he also recognizes that newly born infants don't have them either. Singer takes the idea to its extreme logical end. If there's God, and if we're on the same level as animals, which Singer says, then there's no basis, absolutely no basis at all, for the idea that it's wrong to kill unborn babies. And if this view is actually true, then Singer is right in arguing further. That it, there's also nothing wrong with terminating newly born infants or the old and senile or the severely mentally handicapped. That's what he says. Now, for obvious reasons, a lot of controversy surrounds Peter Singer because a lot of people hate what he says here. A lot of people hate what he says here, but the point is, according to his worldview, he's right he's consistent the basic assumptions of his worldview basic assumptions things like there is no god we evolved from goop we are accidents in a blind universe those basic assumptions naturally lead to these scary conclusions and we can see very clearly i hope that this just cannot be true it can't be. It can't be true. There must be more than that. There must be a solid, transcendent basis for individual human dignity and worth. And there is the image of God. So what would it look like for us to take the image of God more seriously? Think about abortion. If we were to take the issue seriously, if we were to take the imago Day seriously, then we have to be against abortion because abortion is a violation of the image of God. But even more, if we really take the image of God seriously, even more, we would never make the mothers who've had an abortion or the doctors who've performed them feel like scum. We wouldn't do that. Now, we would fight for justice, but we wouldn't degrade, we wouldn't demonize. You see how comprehensive the teaching is. You cannot take the life of another, Genesis 9, and you cannot degrade another person either, James 3, all because we're made in God's image. And so we've got the created image of God. Because God made us, Everyone has profound significance, dignity, and worth. But the story goes on as we know. Not long after the creation of humanity, the narrative takes a tragic turn. God's image in us is now broken. So second point this morning, the the fallen image. Christianity provides a rational, satisfying explanation for why human beings have dignity and rights, as we've seen. But Christianity also provides a solid explanation for why the world is so messed up. At the fall of man in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve chose selfishness over submission to God. And so since that time, the world has been spinning out of control due to the self-centeredness of mankind, at the fall, the perfect image of God in humanity was broken. It's as if the mirror was broken, not completely shattered, so there's nothing left at all, but it took on a lot of damage, enough damage to severely distort the image it was made to reflect. So now we've got a history and a world filled with Broken image bearers and the scary effects of that. War, injustice, violence, greed, selfishness, abortion. Since the fall, we trample over everyone else. We as image bearers trample over other image bearers. That's not what God looks like. And there are really two things I'd like to say on this point. First, the image of God in humanity is severely damaged, but secondly, it's not completely gone. The first one can be obvious to us, perhaps. John Calvin's commentary of Genesis, he said, "...although some obscure elements of that divine image are found remaining in us, they are so maimed that they may truly be said to be destroyed." No part of us is free from the infection of sin. Calvin is right. And this is why the world is the way it is. This is why our hearts are the way they are. But the image of God in man is not completely lost. Human beings, no matter who they are, no matter what you've done, no matter what you believe, Human beings are quite capable of giving off reflections of God in this world. One author says, even though we lost ourselves in the fall, and even though brokenness has mutated every area of our lives, there is still something of that image of God that shines through in every person. And the idea here is this, though the image of God in us is broken and distorted, We're still human beings made by God. We can't lose that reality, no matter how hard we try. If you turn to Romans chapter 1, you see that fascinating passage that's about what it's like to live as broken image bearers today. Romans 1 says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all the unrighteousness and ungodliness of men who by their unrighteousness Suppress the truth, for what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. As image bearers, we cannot escape this truth and reality. We can't do it. Paul says, in effect, that our, the, the effect of our distorted image is that now humanity, you and I, in our natural state, fallen state, we suppress the truth that God made us and that God owns us, that we're accountable to Him. But despite our greatest efforts to escape God's rule over all things, we simply can't get around it. This is the theological idea known as the knowledge of God. In his excellent book, Tactics, Greg Kolkel says, the fact is, the fact is, Mankind is made in the image of God and must live in the world God created. Although culture shifts, human nature remains the same. Ideas change, but ultimate reality does not. So you can claim that there are no moral absolutes. You can say that if you'd like. You can say that, moral, uh, that morality is ultimately relative. You can claim that there's no objective moral standard like so many in our culture. But Christianity says you can't actually believe that fully, truly, consistently to your, to your core. You cannot truly and fully and consistently live that way. We as humans Have an intuitive sense for goodness, one author says. Love and truth. No one needs to tell us when something is good or bad. We know it, even as small children. Why? Because we're made in God's image and live in God's world. You can't escape it. The image is broken, but it's not gone. So think about it. Why are so many people upset with Peter Singer? Why are so many other well-known atheists and secular philosophers upset, outraged by what Peter Singer says? Remember, he's the one who's logically consistent, philosophically consistent. If his worldview is true, then there's nothing wrong with abortion, killing newborn babies, old senile people, or severely mentally disabled people. If his worldview is right, then these are completely rational implications. So why are so many people outraged? Again, Christianity says it's because of the knowledge of God, Romans 1. It's because no matter who you are and no matter what you say you believe, you're made in God's image and you live in God's world and you know it. You know that it's wrong to murder. We know that even if the image of God in us is broken. So we've got the created image, God's design in creating us in his image. We've got the distorted image, the fallen image. But by God's grace, we can keep going this morning and see how things are put right. Lastly, the redeemed image. Since the fall, everyone who's ever lived has had a broken image of God that is in need of repair. Everyone since the fall, everyone who's ever lived has a broken, has had a broken image of God that needs repair, except for one. There was one who didn't have a broken image. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, Paul says, Jesus is the image of of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And he teaches in 2 Corinthians 4 that the God of this world, uh, uh, referring to Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel and the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. The first Man, Adam, was originally created perfectly in God's image. But as we know, he chose himself over God. And so now the Bible teaches that all of us are born in Adam. And born in Adam, therefore, we are born broken, sinful, and distorted. But do you know that the New Testament calls Jesus the second Adam, or the last Adam? Adam the one who has come to fix what the first Adam messed up the one who has come to put right what went wrong with the first Adam 1st Corinthians 15 the first man Adam became a living being the last Adam became a life-giving spirit the first man was from the earth a man of dust the second man is from heaven As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of man, of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Calvin says, Now we see how Christ is the most perfect image of God. And if we are conformed to it, we are so restored that we bear God's image with true righteousness, purity, and intelligence. Jesus came to be the true, perfect image of God in order to redeem what is broken in us. And do you know how he did it? Jesus is the only person in all of history with a perfect, unvarnished image of God. He truly and perfectly showed us what God is like from the most credible source. He himself being the eternal Son of God. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father, he says in John 14. And yet, this perfect image image of God achieved our salvation, achieved our redemption for us in the most surprising way. He was trampled on. Do you remember a devastating result of our distorted image is that now we trample on everyone else's image of God? Greed, violence, murder, injustice, everything that is evil in this world, everything that is unjust, was laid on Jesus. And on the cross, he suffered the worst kind of injustice, cosmic injustice, and he did it willingly. Genesis 9 says we can't murder our fellow man because he's made in God's image. Jesus was brutally murdered, unjustly. James 3 says that we cannot curse our fellow man, because he's made in God's image. Jesus, the perfect image of God, was cursed and was abandoned by even his followers. That's how he did it. That's how he dealt with sin, evil, and suffering. That was how he made all things right. He lived the life We should have lived as God's perfect image and then he died the death we should have died. The perfect image of God was trampled on and he lost the relationship with the Father so that we don't have to, so that we can have it again restored anew. He cried, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And then three days later, the greatest news in the universe Death itself was defeated as he rose on the third day so that we can know death doesn't rule us any longer. By God's radical grace, by God's love, Jesus did the work we couldn't do for us. And now he offers us the redemption of the perfect image of God, his own image. In a world of pain and suffering, Misery, hopelessness. C.S. Lewis reminds us in Miracles something astounding. Listen to this. He says, God is not merely mending, not simply restoring a status quo. Redeemed humanity is to be something more glorious than unfallen humanity. Think about that. Now, on this side of eternity, as we wait for that day, we're invited to take hold of this massive promise of hope and restoration in Christ. We're invited to take hold of this and to live our lives with the humility that Christ himself demonstrated as we wait. As we wait for that day, as we wait for his return, as we wait for that day when all will be put right Forever. There will be a day when our broken, distorted image of God will one day glimmer with the perfection and wholeness that it was originally created to be. And it's all because of what the true image of God has done for us on the cross. So, do you know this? Do you know Him? He never tires of calling to us. No matter how many times we reject him, curse him, no matter how many times we run, or no matter how far we fall, he never grows weary of calling out to us and offering us this hope, this restoration, this salvation. Would you stand and let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for creating us and for creating us good. We know that we've messed up your your world. No one has to tell us. Each person here, me first and foremost, has an acute awareness of our condition. We know. We know what we've done. We know who we are. We we know we've rebelled. We know we've chosen selfishness. And we know by your grace that that path will utterly destroy us forever. And so we thank you for rescue. We thank you for the perfect image of God in your son Jesus, for the person and work of Christ. We thank you for Him doing for us what we could never do ourselves. And we pray today that we would take hold of that salvation. And that we would take hold of that hope, realizing, recognizing that it was you who has first taken hold of us. Change us by this great gospel, by the work of your spirit. I pray you would unify us as a church, call us into action mission. Call us out of complacency. I thank you for ministries like Baby Care and Anchor of Hope and other organizations like this, and I pray that you would continue to use them and use us in a powerful way to bring the hope of this gospel to a lost and hurting community and world. Help us with these things, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.